guys. Welcome into the woodshed. This is Brother Jonathan to be with you here for another episode. We've got a good one coming today. We had a lot of questions off of our last episode and so we're going to kind of piggyback off of that one where we talked about the death penalty and a lot of uh, God's law and the nature of God's law. And so uh, today that's what we're going to talk about. We're going to talk about God's law in relationship with the Christian. So stay tuned as we get started here at the woodshed where we tell the truth even when it hurts. All right, guys, let's settle in. So here we are. We are uh, in episode six now of The Woodshed, and we appreciate everybody uh, listening to us, uh, sharing it with your social media, with your friend group, the recommendations that have come in. Uh, thank you for the questions that have come in, the comments, uh, um, you know, uh, um, uh, suggestions over topics and, and things that we should do with the show. It's been very insightful. We've, we've uh, really uh, you know, enjoyed this experience here in our first year uh, with the Woodshed podcast. And so y'all keep that coming. Uh, if you have any suggestions, if you have any topics that you'd like for us to address, be more than welcome uh, for suggestions and, and uh, insight. So uh, like I said, tonight, today what we're going to do is we're going to piggyback off of our last episode, which we talked about the death penalty and what the death penalty, how it related to the Christian and um, what we should think about it, how we should feel about it, and we should feel the same way that God feels about it. Well, it brought up the bigger question of what about the entirety of God's law? What would the entirety of God's law look like for us? And, um, and so that's what we're going to deal with today. There's a lot of times when we start to talk about the law of God, people get kind of nervous and they kind of get a little, a little shell-shocked uh, because uh, for so long in the Christian church, because of this easy believism that has come along, this theological minimalism where we tried not to truly disciple people, we just tried to introduce people to uh, the salvation doctrines and then just leave them there. Uh, so we would tell people the gospel uh, or what you know what was called the gospel. I believe every word that God spoke is good news. Um, the fact that God was speaking or is speaking to his creation is good news. Every word from God is good news. Every word from God is the gospel. Every word in the Bible is the gospel. But uh, what they would do is they would take just simply Sotiera, you know, Sotiera, they would take just simply the doctrines of salvation and they would uh, say that that alone is the gospel. So it is that um, you know, you're a sinner and you can't save yourself. And so God intervened by sending his son and uh, his son uh, paid the penalty for our sins so that we could enjoy his righteousness. And so we are under grace. We're not under wrath anymore. And so it's not a, a wrath temporarily appeased, but rather it is that we are justified from all of our sins. And now we begin a process of sanctification, of becoming more like Christ Jesus until we reach a glorification where we leave this sin-riddled uh, sick world behind and we abandon the flesh. We're translated into an eternal body and we live with Christ uh, from then on. For all of eternity, we are with Christ. 
And, uh, and so they wanted to, to just get people that basic understanding. And if they just had that basic understanding, then nothing else was important. And they just kind of blew the rest of it out, you know, and said, you know, we're not going to talk about or discuss anything other than just the simple getting saved part of Christianity. And so what it did is it left a lot of people with a ton of questions and it failed to make disciples. It just kind of produced a lot of maybe baby Christians, immature Christians that uh, knew that they were supposed to go to church and that they were supposed to tell other people to go to church. And that's where it left them. They really didn't have a full, broad understanding of scripture. They didn't have the finer points of theology. Uh, All of that stuff was supposed to be left up to pastors in the seminaries. And as soon as they left seminary, they were never to speak of it again. And, uh, And then go into the churches and just tell saved people that they needed to get saved. And, um, and so that's what's happened uh, for so long in our culture is this easy believism, this theological minimalism, uh, to where a lot of people are just dumb when it comes to the Word of God. Uh, they barely can name a few books in the Bible. They can't name all the Ten Commandments. They can't name the Twelve Apostles. Uh, they can't define very basic elementary terms in the church like faith and grace and justification and sanctification. They know these church words, but they don't know what they mean. They don't have a definition of them. And uh, and what this has produced also is a very cockeyed view of God's law. And so uh, they use it, or, or you know, the viewpoint with theological minimalism is that the law is not for us Today, the law is a bad thing. It's not for us to do. And if you uh, start to tiptoe down the road of God's law or investigating it or looking at it or applying it to your life, then you are being legalistic. They throw that out a lot. You are being legalistic. Well, what legalism means is that you're having to keep the law for salvation. That's what legalism means, is keeping it for salvation. Sometimes personal preference creeps into legalism as well, and people will use the term legalism um, you know, uh, against people who have personal preferences of hair lengths or pants versus skirts for ladies and uh, versions of the Bible and things like that. That's not really legalism. That is more of personal preference. Uh, if anything, uh, you might could even verge it upon heresy because that's saying that God said something that God didn't say. Um, that is heresy. And so, uh, you know, those things a lot of times can creep into the conversation of legalism. But really what legalism is at its root is trying to use the law for salvation. Nobody teaches that we use the law for salvation. There's no Christian that's teaching that you use the law for salvation. The law cannot save. It does not save. It does not contain salvation. That was never the intention of the law. The, uh, the law was given for a very specific reason, and, uh, and it's important that we know what that reason is so that we know how to use it in its proper context, what is good about it, what we should, what we should think about it, how we should look upon it. All of those things are going to come off of our understanding of the law and what it is.
So the majority of the time when people, uh, you know, especially, man, those real liberal kooky Christians or those people who turned away from the faith because they went to one of these theological minimalism uh, churches that really didn't teach them anything. It was just kind of a culture versus any kind of a family. Uh, you know, that it wasn't that you were supposed to grow up in the faith, but rather you were just to, supposed to attend the church until you got old and died um, kind, of, kind of situation. And so very often, um, these people would grow up, they would go to a secular, you know, secular uh, education in the high schools, they'd graduate, go on to a secular education in the colleges, and then they would come out of the colleges and go into a variety of, of different work fields or career opportunities, having been schooled, having been indoctrinated, having been discipled in lost secular culture. And so uh, they would then look back upon this elementary version of Christianity that just involved salvation and getting to heaven, and they would cast a lot of stones at it. And they would say, you know, and then if somebody stood up and said, hey, you know, God says this is a sin, we're not supposed to partake in this, we're not supposed to do this, this activity is sinful, here's what God has to say about this topic that we're dealing with in society today, they would look and they'd go, oh, well, you know, that's in the Old Testament, or, you know, that's that's under the law, and uh, the law's not for us, and and uh, they would begin to throw out these attacks of, you know, oh, well, if you believe anything that the Old Testament says, if you believe anything that's in the law, well, then, um, you know, you can't eat pork or, you know, you're not supposed to eat uh, shellfish or, you know, uh, you know, you can't wear mixed fabrics. So, you know, yoga pants are out of the equation, Under Armour, all of these different things. That, that's all done because it's it's mixed fabrics. And so we can't have that. And, uh, and in an effort to try to, um, reveal hypocrisy, they actually reveal their own ignorance because they don't understand the law and the relationship of the law to the Christian. And so they start to try to think that they've uncovered something that good Christians don't know, as if good Christians haven't read the Bible, as if good Christians haven't read Leviticus and Deuteronomy, if they're not familiar with it. Oh, geez, you caught me off guard quoting my holy book to me. No, the, the Christian knows these things. We know those passages. That's not catching us off guard. That's not, a, oh, geez, I didn't know that was in there kind of thing. We know it's in there. We also know how to use it. We know what the law of God is, and we know why it was given to us. So a lot of those things there that are that they always try to use against us, and you've got the you know the 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 viral clip from the West Wing. You've got the viral clip uh, from one of those HBO shows where the guy's pretending to be. Um, uh, like a newscaster, a producer running a newsroom uh, kind of thing. It's the actor from Dumb and Dumber. He's, he's the dumber one because he's attacking God. So, so Jim Carrey is dumb. The other guy's dumber. And, um, and so Dumber has this quote where he starts to talk about shellfish and mixed fabric and all of these different things. And, and ladies, uh, as they're going through their cycle and not touching them and being uh, ritually unclean and needing purification and all of these to try to point out uh, the silliness of Christianity and the silliness of God's law. 
And, uh, and, and so those are viral clips that get circulated and people repeat them and repeat them and repeat them, showing their own ignorance, their own stupidity versus any kind of gotchuism or any kind of uh, hypocrisy on the point of Christians. Because Christians know, if you've read the law, that all the law is separated out into three sections. There's three different topics, three different ideas, three different sections to the law. Now, the first is what they would term, uh, you know, some call it the ceremonial law, some call it the sacrificial law. And what these dealt with is the cleansing of sin, uh, a setting apart of the people for worship. And so, you know, there's a lot of things in there. There, In the ceremonial laws, there would be the food laws, and that might skew into the next category as well. Uh, there would be the uh, Leviticus passage about uh, that people use against tattoos, where really it's talking about marking yourself for the dead. So it's not really talking about tattoos themselves, but rather a tattoo for a purpose. It's something that the pagans of the day were doing, where they were getting a lot of tattoos in memory of, uh, you know, type of thing. Uh, and so here it's saying, no, we don't do that. It's not against tattoos themselves, but rather it's about a tattoo for a person to commit commemorate. We don't do that. So that's not a Christian practice. That is a, um, you know, that's not a Jewish practice. That is a pagan practice. It's something that we don't do. Um, uh, in the ceremonial laws or the sacrificial laws uh, also, we have uh, the purification, you know, that the priests would go through before they would offer the sacrifices. All of those type of things would, would be included in that ceremonial sacrificial law, including the sacrifices themselves and the festivals themselves. So the festivals were given to us um, as signs and as seasons, as a looking backwards into Egypt and God's deliverance there. Um, but then also they're forward-looking. You know, they were prophetic in nature as well. That's why Jesus says at the Passover meal, he says, as oft as you do this, do this in remembrance of me. So no longer looking backwards towards is you know towards Egypt, but rather looking forwards towards the second advent, you know, that, the, that they are prophetic, they are messianic in their, in their nature. And so the Jews kept them looking backwards towards Egypt. The Christians can use them and can look at them as signs and as seasons looking forward to the second coming of Christ. And so there's a dualistic purpose there that we see. Now, for the Christian the sacrificial, the ceremonial laws don't apply anymore because they've been fulfilled. So Jesus fulfilled them. He was our final sacrifice. In fact, I mean, you see this in uh, Hebrews chapter 4. You see it in Romans chapter 5. You see it in Matthew chapter 3. Uh, probably the most clear that you can find is probably Matthew chapter 10. I think it's verse uh, 9 or 10, 11, 12, somewhere in there, where it literally says that Jesus did away with the sacrifices in order to establish God's will, that uh, Jesus was a sacrifice once and for all. And so in that, the sacrificial law has been fulfilled with Jesus on the cross. There is no better lamb. There is no higher sacrifice. There's nothing more that can be offered to God because 
Jesus paid it all. Jesus' blood covered it all. So bulls and rams and all of this, man, that's nothing compared to the sacrifice that God did with his son, Jesus Christ. And so therefore, for us to offer any additional sacrifice would be saying that Jesus wasn't enough that Jesus wasn't good enough, that Jesus didn't complete the job which God intended for him to do, that God messed up and that Jesus was insufficient. That would be blasphemy. That would be heresy. That would be a horrible thing for us. So absolutely, we no longer offer turtle doves and we no longer uh, you know, offer grain offerings and these sorts of things because they are done away with in the sacrificial law where Jesus paid it once and for all. So no longer do we have the sacrifices. Now we have the will of God. So we moved on. So Jesus did away with the sacrifices so that he could establish the will of God. And we see numerous passages throughout the epistles where the term will of God is used. So we know that it's God's will for none to perish, but for all to have eternal life. It's God's will for our sanctification. Uh, we even move into 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, where it gives us a breakdown of three additional things that are God's uh, will for the life of the Christian, what he desires for us. And so we've moved on from sacrifices of temporary sacrifices to a permanency of sacrifices in Jesus Christ. So any of the ceremonial laws are done away with. Okay, so no longer do we need the laver of water to wash our hands, to, pur to purify ourselves for uh, for offering the sacrifice upon the altar. Now uh, we've moved on to the baptism of John, which is that labor of water uh, where we not just purify our hands, but we are washed completely clean. We're buried with Christ, risen to life anew. And so baptism takes the place of that. Jesus takes the place of the altar and the sacrifice. Um, there's no longer a curtain dividing uh, the presence of God into the holy of holy from the rest of us, you know. So in that, he communes with us, and, and, and we have this, this freeness, this oneness with him now uh, that we get to enjoy that they never did. They never had that because it was always a temporary sacrifice just for a little bit, just for a moment. So the first third is done away with in the ceremonial law because of Jesus Christ's fulfillment of all the ceremonial laws. For us to reinstitute them, for us to go back into it, for us to begin to offer sacrifices for our sins as if Jesus didn't do it, in my opinion, would be an abomination of desolation. It would be a high, uh, a very high treason against the things of God. Um, I actually think that's probably in the prophetic, what that is probably the abomination of desolation, is the reestablishment of the second temple or of the temple again, and, uh, and the resumption of sacrifices for sin. Um, because that would desecrate, that would be an abomination because it would be lowering the, the name of Christ and what he did. And so, uh, so with that, ceremonial law, one-third out the door. We don't have to worry about that. We can look at it. We can learn for, from it. We can see what Christ did for us in his sacrifice by looking at what those other sacrifices did. Okay, so we can learn from it. The second third of the law is the civil law. It's the government law. And so this is uh, the setting up of the theocracy. This is their government, how they were supposed to run their judicial system with the Sabbath years, the Jubilee years, 
all of these sorts of things, uh, even property laws that they couldn't sell land for permanency, but rather that law that uh, land was just simply sold until the next jubilee year or until the next seventh year to the next fiftieth year. You know, however long it be it it is, it's more of that the sale of land was more of a sale of lease or farming rights, hunting rights, mineral rights, that kind of thing. But that there was a definitive end to it, and then it would revert back to the family who initially sold it. And so it established their judicial system, their property laws, also had a bevy of their uh, economic laws of how the economy was supposed to work as far as uh, not uh, harvesting the corners of the fields for those who were less fortunate that they could come and gather. You didn't uh, you didn't pick your vineyards clean, but you left some there for, for those who were poor, disadvantaged, could come, and they would put in the time, the work, the effort to, to get it themselves. Not that you... Uh, uh, not that you harvested it and gave it, but rather that you left it there for those who were willing to work. They would show up and that they could get it for themselves, that they had the opportunity if they weren't lazy. You know, so if they, you know, if they wanted to work, they would eat. If they didn't want to work, they didn't eat. And um, and so not only the economic laws, you know, the the stealing, uh, how to run your payroll, all of those sorts of things were covered under the civil law as well. Even the the court system, um, you know, the the judicial premises, the eye for an eye, things like that. All of that is established under the civil law. Now, with the civil law, the thing is, is that that was given to those people. That was given to the Jews. And that's how Israel is expected to to live up to. That's the standard that God put in place for their government, not for every other government. And so we don't see the apostles going into these other ones and trying to set up the, the uh, the Jewish court system or the Jewish government system, uh, that's never anything that leaves Israel. It's right there. God intended it for those people in that land. That's how God wanted them to live by. And so uh, for us here in, in you know, the United States, we're not, under, uh, we're not under the penalty of God's law for not keeping up the civil law, for not having a theocracy, for not uh, having the court system run up that away, for not having uh, property rights uh, according to God's word. Now, I tell you, I think their wisdom, I think they're much smarter than ours uh, because God's ways are higher than our ways. You know, I don't think that uh, Thomas Jefferson and George Washington and, and Sam Adams and, and all these dudes, I don't think that they wrote a better system than God. All right. Uh, I, you know, God's ways are the best. They are perfect. And so in that, I think we'd probably be very wise to look at these civil laws and to incorporate them into our judicial system, into our system of government, because God did it, because God set it up that way, and God's smarter than we are. He is all-knowing, and we are not. And so, you know, we don't know uh, barely anything. And so looking at an all-eternal, all-knowing, all-loving God uh, we'd be really smart to go his way instead of trying to think of you know how we can do it ourselves or do it apart from him. So uh, so those laws, those civil laws, are just for Israel. So they're just for Jewish society. So everybody else isn't beholden unto that. So you know there we had Israel, but at the same time China um, is not going to be held accountable for not keeping up the civil law of God. Um, you know, there's a completely different setup over there. 
Now, at the same time, they probably should go through becoming more like that, you know, because there is wisdom in it. There's wisdom in all of God's ways. But it in itself is not a mandate for Christians who live in a society that doesn't conform to God's civil law to uh, to then live contrary to the civil law in the country they are in order to keep God's civil law. That's not a commandment that's given to us. Uh, Rather, we're to change it from within. We're to witness, we're to evangelize, we're to do all this to be bringing every nation into being a Christian nation. The entire world should be Christian. That's the mandate that God gave to us, that we go into all the world, we preach, we teach, we baptize, we make disciples. And so as we make disciples, disciples obey God. As there's more disciples, then the nation itself will mold and change over time into being a Christian nation. That's what we're supposed to do with the Great Commission. Not just get them saved so they can get to heaven, but get them saved, disciple them. If we disciple enough, then eventually they all turn into Christian nations and we have a Christian planet ultimately. You know, I mean, then we can start on space and, you know, check for aliens and see if we can introduce them to the saving grace of Jesus Christ too. And so we have a ceremonial law that's fulfilled by Christ. We have a civil law, which is just for Israel and just for the Jew. And then the third one is the moral law or the ethic law. And so in that, God's ethics, God's morals, God's ways of doing things, um, that's still in effect, man. I mean, that is still 100% in effect. God holds us to that standard. Every person ever born on this earth is held to that standard. In fact, people who aren't born on this earth are held to that standard because Adam was just created. He wasn't birthed. He was held to that standard too. You got to do what God says. And if God deems something a sin then it's a sin. And it doesn't matter how society views it. It doesn't matter what's popular, what the culture is dictating. None of that matters. All right. So it doesn't mean, you know, it doesn't, God's God's morals and God's law doesn't change with the times. The times are supposed to change to God's law. And so uh, they reveal to us what the law does, what the moral or, or the ethical law reveals to us is God's nature, is God's character, God's values, and God's ways of looking at things, the wisdom behind God. And so uh, those things never run out, all right? So they never run their course. They never expire. They're never done away with. We never get past the moral law. God still holds us accountable to the moral law. If he didn't, then there would be no sin. Yeah, if he didn't, then there would be no sin. Because what we see in 1 John chapter 3 and verse 4, it says that sin is the transgression of the law. That's what sin is. Sin is the transgression of God's law. If God says it and you don't do it, that is sin. And when everything God says is a law. It comes from God. If God said it, he said it, and he expects us to do it. He expects us to be held to it. And so uh, to know to do good and do it not, that is sin. It's a transgression of the law. Once God tells us, reveals to us uh, what he desires from us, if we fail to do so, then we are sinning. 
And so the, uh, the moral law itself, it, it pretty much contains the Ten Commandments, which is Exodus chapter 20. And then it, it also deals with a lot of different sexual sins in Leviticus 20 and, and, uh, and some other places uh, that still carry over to today. So anything dealing with the morals or the ethics that God expects from his people, what God calls sin and what God does not call sin, what God expects from his people, and uh, or what God expects from all people, uh, those things are the moral law, and we never get past those. So there's no there there are churches out there where the pastor will stand up and say we're not under the law we're under grace. Yeah, yeah, that's true. We are, and that is in the realm of for salvation. We don't obtain salvation by the law. We obtain salvation by the very grace of God. It's a gift from God. You don't earn it through the law. And so, it, yeah, absolutely, man. We're saved by grace through faith, and, uh, and we are not under the law for salvation. But we are under the law because God expects things from his people. That's why he revealed the law uh, to us is so that we could see our sinfulness and so that we could see his righteousness, so that we could see what we need to repent of, and we can see what we need to ascribe to, what we need to follow after, what we need to live up to. So it sets a standard. It gives, it gives us God's standard, and it also gives us a, a viewpoint into the mind of God, just like the commandment that thou shalt not murder. God wants to preserve innocent life. It's not thou shalt not kill. That's a mistranslation. It's thou shalt not murder. You don't take innocent life. And so in that, it tells us that there's innocent life and there's non-innocent life. And then that there's a taking of life. And then there's other times where we are to put them to death because God is uh, God's pretty heavy on the death penalty. There's 28, 29 crimes where God uses the death penalty. In the United States, we have one and we don't even use it. You know, the only death penalty is for murder and there are tens of thousands of murders committed every year, and there are you know, a dozen or two people put to death for murder. So we don't even keep it really for one crime. God has 29 crimes that he ascribes the death penalty to. So we can reveal in that the sanctity of life, the sanctity of creation. Uh, there's a whole lot of things that we can put in there um, in thou shalt not murder, thou shalt not steal. Right? right there, it tells us that God believes in property rights and God doles out blessings to different people according to different standards and different reasons. And it's not for us to play God behind his back and say, God messed up when he gave you that instead of giving it to me. So I'm going to correct God's mistake and take that from you and hold it to myself. It, it's playing God with property. God is the one who blesses, and God blesses as he sees fit, and we should live according to God's blessing. If we want to be more blessed, we should be more obedient. We should be, uh, we should be uh, more given to the way that he says to do things. He says he'll bless what we put our hands to. So with that, put your hand to some stuff, man, except for thieving. You know, put your hand to some stuff. You know, get to work. And, uh, you know, that God's the one that gives you the ability to obtain wealth. So go out there, work as a Christian in the marketplace, and work. Uh, he expects us to work six days a week. And then one day a week, he expects us absolutely not to work. 
So he wants us to see with that Sabbath day, you know, to remember the Sabbath and keep it holy. He wants us to go out there and labor because we are in a cursed world. We're a cursed creation in a cursed world. We have to work to make this place. We have to work to make it in life. And so we are supposed to be people of work, not chambering in wantonness, but we're supposed to be people of work. And so we're constantly doing something, building up. We're constantly subduing. We're constantly bringing the world into subjection to the glory of God. And in doing so, we become blessed uh, financially with greater blessings. Not because we go to the mailbox and get a check, not because money raineth down from us, not because, you know, uh, I go to the Pentecostal church and God spits, you know, gold glitter out of the, you know, out of the AC vents on me, or I find, you know, golden nuggets in my Bible. None of that trivial showmanship, you know, Barnum and Bailey Baptist church kind of junk, but, uh, but rather that we work as unto the Lord and that God blesses what we put our hand to. That's it. And so not only do we see that God expects work, that God rewards work, but also that God expects rest. He could have said seven days work. He said six, and then you rest. Then you take a break. Then you, uh, then you rest, you recuperate, and you worship one day a week. You thank God for all the blessings. You work for the blessings. You thank God for the blessings. That's part of the Ten Commandments as well. The sanctity of marriage and adultery, you know, the, you know adultery uh, in God's eyes carries the death penalty. You kill them both. You kill the man, you kill the woman, you kill them both. And so God expects us to treat marriage very seriously, very seriously. Um, if there's one place that we as the church have failed is in our treatment of God's holy institution, Malachi tells us it's God's holy institution. And so, uh, man, you know, we treat marriage like it's just some flippant thing. We engage in marriage too quickly. Uh, we marriage, we, we stay married for too little. Uh, it's constant hookup, shack up, break up. Uh, most churches are no better than the bar. And, uh, you know, you got folks on their fifth, sixth, seventh marriage and, you know, decrying the sanctity of marriage. It's one of those things that, man, we've drug it through a mud puddle and then looked at other people and told them, why are you dragging it through the mud puddle? So uh, we should take it much more serious. We should teach it much differently. We shouldn't have a worldly idea of uh, choosing a mate and then a, a worldly idea of what it means to be married. Uh, we don't blur the lines between male and female. We don't blur the lines of gender roles that God laid out uh, in the curse. We don't, uh, we don't do any of those things. And then once we're married, we're married till death do us part. And yeah, there's some provisions for divorce in there, but... They are ones that they should be rarely exercised. Just because there is sexual immorality within a marriage doesn't mean that you have to divorce. It just means that there could be a divorce there. That that's a place where God would, would permit, begrudgingly, but permit, but not expect a divorce. 
So, uh, man, we divorce for all kinds of reasons nowadays. People who call themselves Christians will divorce over financial matters, will divorce over health issues, will divorce over uh, a bevy of different uh, you know, things because society or Caesar has said that it's acceptable. And so then the Christian goes, well, okay, well, you know, the government says it's okay. So, you know, who cares what God says? It's just what the government says. And so we've transgressed in the area of adultery, uh, in, in marital rights and God's view of marriage. We've transgressed in the sanctity of life. We've transgressed in property rights. Um, we've transgressed in, in the Sabbath and, uh, you know, and working and resting. All of these other things, man, you know, it, it is just unbelievable. The state of when you actually look at what God expects and demands from his people, and you look at where his people are now, we're way off base. So we've got the ceremonial law fulfilled in Christ. We have the civil law, which is just exclusively for the Jewish uh, people. God doesn't expect us to build temples. God doesn't expect us to organize our government according to, uh, uh, you know, according to uh, you know, Leviticus and Deuteronomy, Exodus. You know, those aren't things that he's holding us accountable for. Those are good ideas. We should learn from them. We should, you know, uh, we should model our governments after them. But, you know, he's not holding us to account for that. But the moral law, absolutely still in effect. Even the most liberal preacher standing in the pulpit isn't saying that it's okay for Christians to murder. That it's okay for Christians to steal, you know, to steal like a, you know, like it's going out of style, uh, you know, for us to bust windows and and riot and loot and, nah, man, they're not doing that. Why? Because of God's moral law. So the same dude telling you that you're not under the law, you're under grace, then also will turn around and tell you not to break the law, because we're supposed to keep the law. We're supposed to live up to God's standard that He set for His people. Not for salvation, but because of salvation. So we are not justified by the law. That's Galatians chapter 3. That, that whole chapter deals with the law and how it relates to the Christian. And so we're not justified by the law. The law was never intended to justify us. That's the, that's the curse of the law is that it showed us our, our sinfulness and our need of a Savior but it didn't provide a savior. There's no salvation in the law. There was just temporary appeasement in the law through the sacrifices. So now we don't have the law for salvation, or we don't have the law to try to justify ourselves. The law was put in place to try to keep sin down, to try to preserve the world in a state of, of, um, of being not out of control until Christ came. And with Christ came justification. Christ paid our sin debt. The law never pays the sin debt. So if you get stopped for speeding, then he writes you a ticket. That ticket is a punishment. There's a indebtedness for your breaking of the law. Well, you need somebody to pay the debt. You can't look at the, you can't look at the officer and say, well, I'm not going to speed anymore, so that takes care of this ticket, right? Well, no, you're expected not to speed anymore. And so if you kept the law after one solitary transgression, if you kept all the rest of the law for all the rest of your life, it would never pay for that one transgression because God expected you to keep all of the law for all of your life. God expected 
perfection. God expected holiness. And when man fell from that place of obedience to God, that place of subjection to God, that place of entire worship to God and rebelled against him, then man created a sin debt against God. And it was a sin debt that man could not pay because anything he did good was expected. Anything he did perfect was expected. Anything he did holy was expected. So there was no extra credit that you could earn from God in order to take care of your debt because perfect was expected and you can't be better than perfect. So there was no justification by the law, but the law wasn't against the promises of God. So while we weren't justified by the law, in the same place and at looking at the same thing, we also see that, we, that the law is not against the promises of God. The law wasn't a curse. The law had a curse in it. And the curse was, now you know you're a sinner. Now there's no ignorance in which you're committing the sin. Now it's willful disobedience. Now you have to account for this sinfulness. That was the curse. The law itself wasn't a curse. The curse was now the knowledge that you are not living up to God's standard. So the law is a good thing. The law reveals to us the nature of God. It reveals to us the character of God. It reveals to us the morality and the ethics and the thoughts and the mind of God. The law, the moral law, the ethical law is a blessing of God to his people. And he also expects for us to keep it in its entirety. So we should keep the Ten Commandments. We should keep the, the, uh, the commands that deal with uh, actual sin, okay? Sin against God and morals and ethics, sins against one another. That's all expected by us. The, the detailed out sexual sins. We're supposed to abide by God's design for sex and God, what God calls sexual sin. We're supposed to stay away from. We're supposed to flee from the very appearance of it, okay? So, in this, you know, we see the three sections that ceremonial is done away with in Christ. The civil is just for the Jews. The moral law is still for us. And, uh, and so what we see is after Christ is crucified, after he's buried and after he's risen on the third day, he ascends into the heaven. He, he promises a second advent that he's coming again. And um, now we have this issue of how do we handle the law in the New Testament church. And we see through Paul's writings, we've already talked about Galatians chapter 3, we talk about Romans, uh, you know, all of these various places. We can look at Jesus' own comments in Matthew uh, chapter 24, and, uh, and it'll reveal to us himself, uh, you know, how, what he expects from us. So in that, uh, you know, he even says in Matthew chapter 24 that in the last days that um, people's love will wax cold, that their relationship with God will, um, will dry up or that it'll go into a season of winter. Or it'll become dead um, because of lawlessness or iniquity, which is, you know, breaking of the law. Because of lawlessness. Well, if Jesus expected at the last days that there would be lawlessness, well, what does that tell you? Can you have lawlessness with no law? 
if if the law no longer applies to us, can there be lawlessness? How is there lawlessness if there's no law? I mean, that'd be like getting a speeding ticket if there's no speed limits. It can't happen. And so even Jesus, you know, tells us that in, you know with his use of the word iniquity or transgressions. Well, what are you transgressing? You're transgressing the law. And so, uh, you know, here the very words of Christ tell us this. And then some dirtbag preacher will stand up there, usually laden down in his own sin, and then taking advantage, uh, the New Testament epistle says, takes advantage of gullible women, silly women, um, to get them to commit more sin too. He's taking advantage of you. These are wolves in sheep's clothing. If your pastor tells you that the law of God is not for the people of God, find another church. All right. That dude does not know what he's talking about. He is a showman. He is a shyster. He is a he's he's an actor in the local community theater with a cross on the wall. That is all he is. So get out of there. He ain't gonna teach you anything. He is not gonna lead you to Christ. He is not gonna reveal the righteousness of God. He is not gonna benefit you or your family. All he's gonna do is take up offerings and buy bigger houses and better vehicles. That's all that goober is gonna do. So get out of there if they tell you that the law is not. For today because Jesus said the law was for today. Now, we do deal with a, with a group of people coming into the New Testament church because the New Testament church is made up of Messianic Jews, those who were raised with a different viewpoint of the law and the need for sacrifices and an incomplete understanding of Christ and those sacrifices. And, um, and we see this group of people come in who are Judaizers. And what the Judaizers were all about was that the Judaizers wanted to make the Christians real good Jews. And so they told them, hey, listen, you got to look like us and you got to smell like us. You got to wear these kind of clothes. You got to wear your hair this kind of style. Um, you know, you have to have this marking in your flesh. You have to observe these days and you have to, uh, you can't walk but this far on the, on the Sabbath day. They wanted to incorporate all of the ceremonial laws and all of the civil laws in on top of the Christian. And Paul referred to them as Judaizers, all right? So they were taking the Christians and not just teaching them the moral law, but rather were wanting to put the Christians under the civil law and the ceremonial law, that which was only for the Jews, that which was fulfilled in Christ. And so he called them Judaizers. And he says, you know, no, that's not, you know, we're not for that two-thirds of the law. That doesn't apply to the Christian. And so we have Jesus. We don't need the ceremonial. We're not Jews. We don't need the civil law. And so, uh, so we had the Judaizers, and we see there's a struggle between the Judaizers. Now, today in the New Testament church, we have our own strand of Judaizers. We've got our, our, um, you know, our Seventh-day Adventists, which are really a cult. They're really not Christians, but that, that teaching is coming out. You know, Sabbath-keeping is coming out, and we see that Jesus and the apostles went to Sabbath, or went, to, uh, um, went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day. They went to the temple on the Sabbath day. We also see the New Testament church meeting on the Lord's day, which is the first day of the week, which is the day that Christ rose. And so uh, we have church history of the Christian church meeting on the first day of the week. We see the Jews going to church on the seventh day of the week. Well, which are we? 
well, we're Christians. You know, so the Sabbath, you can have your Sabbath any day. All right. And if you want to be a Sabbath keeper, that's fine, man. Hey, Friday night to Saturday night, then you keep your Sabbath and then get your butt up and you go to church on Sunday. Okay. There is no prohibition against worship on Sunday. So even if you believe that you're supposed to keep the Sabbath, that's great. You can still go to church too. So there's no prohibition against going to the house of worship on the Lord's day. That's it. So most of the time, these people get real kooky. They start to get into head coverings. They start to get into uh, a variety of, of odd Jewish things. And man, if you can put a Jewish person on TBN with something cool to say about, you know, ancient, you know, uh, Israel, uh, you know, uh, some obscure, uh, you know, cultural reference to do with ancient, uh, you know, the ancient Jews, then they will sell a ton of books. They will write all kinds of stuff. They will be a frequent flyer at all the big conferences and all the prosperity churches will love to have them because those people are goobers and they're trying to take advantage of you and they're trying to raise offerings and that's all that it's about. And so we're not called to be Jews, all right? We're Christians. And so we are God's people in these last days. We're not supposed to keep the ceremonial. We're not supposed to keep the civil we are supposed to keep the moral. So beware of Judaizers. Just beware of them and realize that if they're trying to make you more Jewish, they're not making you more Christian. And you don't have to be Jewish to be Christian. And so we have our Judaizers. Then we go along and we find our liberals. Now what our liberals will try to do, the Judaizers, they try to make you keep the ceremonial and the civil and the moral law instead of just the moral law that is for the Christian. Now, what the liberals will do is the liberals will come along and they just want to move the moral laws around. And so they say, oh, well, you know, because of society and in that day, the gender roles, that's more of a civil law than it is a moral law. Yeah, the, the sexual immorality, well, that's just because in, during that day and because of this and because of that, then the sexual laws are more of a, more of a civil law. They're not really a... a um, they're not really a moral law. And so what the liberals will try to do is to push things out of the category of moral laws and push them into the area of civil laws and say that they're antiquated, they're out of date, they were just for people at that time and that in that culture and that part of the world. And so that's what the liberals always try to do is to shrink down the moral law. And if they can make it as small as possible and push all of those things up into the civil law, then, then that's what makes them happy. Because at the end of the day, what they want is to not obey God. They want to live in their sins and go to heaven too. And, uh, and so they want Christ to pay for their sins. They, they want them to, um, to pay for the sins, but they want to keep their pigs. And so they, they want to keep the uncleanness. They want to keep the nastiness. They want to keep uh, whatever sin that they really enjoy. And so they try to move that sin into the civil law uh, and say, oh, well, that, that sin was just a sin in that day, not in today. And they try to shrink the moral law. And so uh, really today, a lot of churches have fallen into this. There's a lot of liberal Christian churches and uh, in the liberal Christian churches, then you know the only sin is not being nice. That's the that's the big sin in liberal churches is that you should be nice, and so you can do anything you want to do as long as you're being nice, as long as you're being polite, 
And so what would Jesus do? Jesus would never flip tip, you know, flip tables. He would never make a whip and, and go to town on some people. Um, he would never call them uh, whitewashed tombs. He would never call them uh, urinals. He would never say that they're a brood of vipers. He would never uh, say that they're of their father, the devil. Those are never things that Jesus would do because Jesus was a really sweet boy. And so we should just be like Jesus and be nice. And that that is the that is the measuring stick of a Christian of how good a Christian is is how nice are they to everyone? Does everybody love them? Because if everybody likes them, if they're agreeable with everybody, then that makes them a good Christian. And under their own definition, Jesus wasn't a good Christian, because very often Jesus would hurt your feelings in order to save your soul. And Jesus would absolutely tell you the truth and love and it would offend you and it would divide you and it would make you choose him over your family, him over your culture, him over your nation, him over your sin. It was absolutely a division that Christ came to bring upon this earth, not a unity. See, the liberals preach unity because unity is nice. And here we try to be unified with people. We want to be one with people. We want to be uh, we want to be hospitable with all. But in that, we want to be obedient to one, only to one. We're obedient to God and to God alone, and that's all. So the liberals push their sins. They want to push all sins that they like, that they that they choose to commit. They want to push all those sins up into the civil category, and they want to minimize that moral law down to the very, very few of what they like. And so be charitable, be nice, be giving, think good thoughts, live a green life, uh, be healthy, give to the poor, those sorts of things. That's what it means to be a Christian. Those are the only moral laws. All the rest of them, sexual sin, that civil law, uh, gender roles, that civil law, they, they want to push all of that stuff up a category and away from it. And then we have those who are just truly lawless, those who teach against the law. Uh, today, or well, not even today, but historically, what we've called them is antinomiums. All right, so antinomianism is against the law. Now, this was made popular. That phrase was coined by the great Martin Luther, not Martin Luther King Jr., but Martin Luther, okay? We're talking about uh, the, the German reformer, the Protestant of all Protestants, all right? The 95 Thesis. Uh, you know, we're talking about Martin Luther here. He coins the phrase antinomianism. And uh, antinomianism simply means anti-law. There were people who were against the law. They thought that that uh, repentance was one single act that took place, and so it was the uh, the single solitary action of salvation. And once that was achieved, once you said the prayer, walked the aisle, took the preacher's hand, said the prayer, then there was no expectations for you from there on. That uh, that repentance was a single action. One solitary event in the in the history of of a man, and then he just could live however he wanted to. The law was not applicable to him in any way. He could do anything he wanted to do because he was a saved man now. Martin Luther had the quote that he says, "All the life of a Christian is one of repentance that re, that we start out with repentance and we continue to repent." And every day, God wakes us up, and every day, the Holy Spirit convicts us of sin, and every day, the Christian responds to conviction with repentance. The lost man doesn't feel convicted, and he's happy in his sins, 
the uh, the reprobate, the man who is backslidden, he feels conviction but doesn't care, and he just chooses to listen to his flesh over listening to the voice of God, the you know the conviction of the Holy Spirit, and uh, and so he continues in his sin. But the Christian feels conviction and immediately repents. That's what a Christian does. That's the process of sanctification, guys. And we begin sanctification at justification, at the initial salvation where God takes care of our sin debt. And we are then justified and we move into sanctification where we are being sanctified. We are being sainted. We're becoming saints every day. We're getting better and better. We are not as good as we will be tomorrow, but we're better than we were yesterday. We're more conformed to the image of Christ, more obedient to the word of God than we were yesterday. And we continue in that until we finally reach glorification when we die or when Christ comes back for us and we meet him in the clouds. And so that is the uh, the three responses to the law in the New Testament church is either they are Judaizers and they try to put you under the ceremonial and the civil law in addition to the moral law. They are liberals who try to push moral laws into the civil category so that they can justify getting rid of them and, and being uh, outside of the law of God. They can sin without uh, a conscience because they think that sin is done away with somehow. Or you move into the lawlessness, the antinomians, uh, where they think that repentance was a single act and now we can live however we want to. And uh, because we said our prayer, we got our ticket, you know, our, our you know, get out of hell free card. And, uh, and so with that, we can live however we want to. Now, what's funny is, man, that started out a long time ago. Antinomianism is something that is rampant in the church today. It is spreading like a cancer. Uh, there are people with blogs and, and podcasts and uh, YouTube channels who teach this antinomianism. And, uh, and before Martin Luther ever called it antinomianism, uh, Jesus called it, uh, you know, called it uh, the, the uh, work of the Nicolaitans. In the book of uh, the book of Revelation, uh, twice he refers to the Nicolaitans. Now, the Nicolaitans uh, were a split off of the Christian Church, where we see uh, the seven initial deacons of the church in Jerusalem get picked. Well, we know one of those guys. We know Stephen. We know what a rock star he was. He was amazing, and uh, just this man full of the word, full of wisdom, full of courage. And uh, we even see him give prophetic utterance at his stoning. And um, and then there's this other dude named Nicholas. And Nicholas was a deacon. He now remember that the initial deacons in the book of Acts that they were Hellenists. And so here they pick the Hellenists. The Hellenist Jews come up and they say, "Hey, um, our widows aren't getting a fair distribution." And so uh, the apostles, in their wisdom, they said, oh, well, you don't like the way we're doing it. Now you're in charge. You do it. You know, if you don't like it, you do it now. So uh, the New Testament church had a great way of dealing with critics and with naysayers. They gave them a job and said, okay, well, now you have to do it. If you don't like the way it's doing, shut up and go to work. You know, do this. And so, um, and so they put them to work handling it. Well, then, because they had that position of authority, that position of recognition, that position of usefulness in the church, that uh, they started to garner a little bit of a following. And so Nicholas got a little bit of a following, and instead of continuing in his good works that Christ had, had prepared before him, he turned and instead started to preach 
antinomianism. He started to preach against the law. And even to the point to where he would, you know, basically offered his wife up for the use of other men. Uh, other men could uh, have their way with his wife. Uh, you know, he uh, would incorporate these pagan love feasts and all of the, the secular moon cycles and all this kind of stuff into it. And he basically taught a free, cheap grace. Walk the aisle, say the prayer, live however you want to, just, you know, thank Jesus on the way to hell. And um, and so that it started way back then, guys, and we're still dealing with it today. Uh, it's went and it's evolved, and it's got all these different kind of monikers, seeker-friendly movement uh, things. All that is is antinomianism. And to be honest with you, if your church preaches salvation but never tells you what to do once you're saved other than keep showing up, they're probably leaning towards teaching you antinomianism. They're not discipling you the way that God told us to be discipled. Well, what are we to be discipled in? We're to be discipled in the entirety of the Word of God. And so we should be teaching the law of God. We should teach the ceremonial law so that we can tell you what Jesus did for us in his sacrifice for us. We should teach the civil law to teach what God expects and how God thinks and how God would set up government and the wisdom that we can glean off of that. And we should absolutely teach the moral law of how we should respond to God, how God would have us to respond to one another, um, you know, how we should live in this world, how we should work in this world, how we should uh, get married in this world, how we should have children in this world, how we should disciple them in this world. All of that's contained in the law of God. We should teach the history uh, of the Jewish people and learn from how God used these people and how God responded to them, uh, you know, to see how God responded to the lost heathen nations around his people. We should absolutely delve into the entirety of the word of God. And guess what? It's all the gospel because it's all good news. God never spoke a bad word. God never did anything that was bad. All of God's words are equal, and all of God's words are, should be cherished in the New Testament church. So there it is, guys. The word of God, the law of God, absolutely for the Christian today. Anybody who says different is just dumb. They just haven't thought it out. They haven't read the book. They haven't looked into it. They haven't given it thought. They're repeating phrases that they heard on TV. They're repeating phrases that they heard a pastor say one time, and they don't even understand what they're saying, okay? We're not to keep the ceremonial law. Jesus paid it all. We're not to keep the civil law because we're not in Israel and we're not Jewish. But we are to keep the moral law because God expects it. Because Jesus demands it. In fact, Jesus reiterated most of the Old Testament moral law in the four Gospels. And Paul absolutely addresses every one of the moral laws in the epistles. And so it's restated to the New Testament church. How can you say that it's not for us when Jesus told it to us and when Paul and Peter and John wrote it to us? And we'll throw Luke in there too. And so in that, it's absolutely for us today. Look into it. See the wisdom. See the mind of God. See his ethics and his morals. See his nature. See his character. See his values so that you can shine the light of Christ into this very dark and fallen world in which God has placed us 
to be his workers in the work that he has prepared for us ahead of time. So in that, don't be a Judaizer, don't be a liberal, don't be antinomian, don't be a Nicolaitan, don't be lawless, and don't be stupid on purpose. Uh, read your Bible. Find out what God says. Don't listen to what some preacher says. Read your Bible. So if you want to continue further study on this, guys, you can look at Exodus chapter 20. You can look at Galatians chapter 3. Look at the book of 1 John. The entire book of 1 John pretty much deals with this issue of the Christian living in sin. Um, man, you know, pretty much any of the New Testament epistles, you open it up and it's there. But those would be great places to start if you want to do some further reading, some further study on this topic. And uh, with that, you know, if you have a question, shoot it to us here at the Woodshed. We'd be more than happy to look at it and to uh, uh, respond to you. We may make an episode off of it. Uh, go to our Facebook page. You can uh, find us there with the Woodshed as the same logo that you see pop up with our with whatever podcast player that you may be listening to us. And uh, until next time, my friends, this has been Brother Jonathan at the Woodshed where we tell the truth even when it hurts. God bless you.